Father, we do thank you again for this morning and this opportunity that you have given us to be together, to sing your praises, to uh, declare your excellencies, to exalt your name. And uh, Lord, I pray that we would continue to do so as we look into your word. I pray as we finish up this uh, book of First Thessalonians that you would just bless what we have uh, heard and learned that we would apply it to our lives by your Spirit, that we would certainly not be just hearers, but doers. We would be doers also by your power and strength, that our lives would be changed. And so we thank you for this morning and this time we have in your word. We ask you to bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when you think of uh, final words, what do you think of? Uh, Usually those uh, final words are something that's pretty important. And today we come to the end of First Thessalonians, where we're going to have Paul's final exhortations to the Thessalonians. And given he will write another letter, and uh, he, he is not saying to them, hey, it's the last time I'm going to see you, yet still it is the end of the letter. And these final exhortations are quite important. And again, if you think about that, when you're talking to someone and you're giving them instruction, usually the last thing you say is quite important. And so we're going to see that today as we're going to see Paul's final words to the church here in Thessalonica. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? And we're going to be looking at verses 25 to 28. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we have been on a wonderful journey through the book of 1 Thessalonians. I hope you've been blessed by it. I have. Uh, It's amazing. You know, just whatever book we study, it's always the best book while we're doing it. So I'm thankful for it. And so... Be praying about what book, the, what best book the Lord has us do next. Um, so with that in mind, we've been looking at the changed lives of the Thessalonians, and their lives were changed by Jesus Christ. They turned to God from idols. Um, they were saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul is writing to a church that is less than a year, no, year old in the faith. And uh, within that, he has uh, been orphaned from them very early in their relationship with Jesus. And he's very concerned for them. And he has heard about their spiritual condition through Timothy. And he has heard and is so thankful for their response to the gospel. He's thankful for their salvation, that uh, it has been broadcast throughout the area. And I mentioned it earlier, how they turned to God. These were idolaters who turned to Jesus Christ. Uh, praise the Lord. And so he's so thankful. And then we came to chapter 2 where he had to begin to defend himself. You see, there's a spiritual battle out there. And if you preach and teach the Word of God, there are going to be those who try to detract and turn people away because Satan doesn't want the Word of God to go out. And so Paul had to defend himself in the beginning of chapter 2 in the manner in which he came. But he defended it in the context of sharing the truth of God, that they would be built up with that. And again, we see he was so thankful that they responded to the word of God as the word of God, not the word of man, but the word of God which performs its work in you who believe. And we saw the evidence of their salvation, that they were suffering just like the Jews who came to faith suffered. It was an evidence they had changed lives because they had a new opposition, temporal but yet a new opposition. And then we saw that the Apostle Paul was concerned and he relays that he had sent Timothy to check in on their faith, to to see how they were doing in the faith. And he got good news of their faith in Jesus Christ and their love for one another and that they still have an affection for the Apostle Paul. Their hearts had not been turned away by the detractors and Paul was so thankful for that. And then we came to chapter 4. But the Apostle Paul begins to shift gears and speak about those things which concern our walk and pleasing God. And so he desires that they would excel still more in how to walk and please God, that they needed to keep applying biblical instruction, understanding that it's God's will or what God's will is for them. And we see that that will is to be sanctified, to be set apart. And so the Apostle Paul begins to share those things in which they are to excel still more in. First of all, they were to excel still more in purity. And then they were to excel still more in love for one another. And then they were to excel still more in hope. As they were concerned, rightfully so, being a young church about believers who had died before Jesus was coming. They were eagerly awaiting his coming and they had died. 
And the, Paul, inspired by the Spirit, shares the wonderful truth that is so comforting that their loved ones are with Jesus and they're coming first and they'll be raised first and that there'll be a great reunion in the air and so comfort one another with these wonderful words. And then he moves to a new section in uh, chapter 5 to address the issue of the day of the Lord because they were being persecuted. And we'll see this in Second Thessalonians in the beginning of that book, that they were being persecuted heavily. And some were coming along and saying, maybe you're going in the day of the Lord. You're in the day of the Lord right now. And so Paul has to clarify that that day is not going to overtake you like a thief, but it will overtake them like a thief. You see, we are not destined for wrath, but for salvation. And therefore, because we are of the day and not of the night, we should be uh, living that way as we allow Christ to function through us. And then he came to the end of the book, basically, where we have 22 commands. We'll see the end of those today, where the Apostle Paul gives them instruction. And we saw how they were to function in the church, in the body of Christ, in relationship, first of all, to their leaders. Uh, they, they were to, to, to appreciate, highly hold them in high esteem, those who work hard, those who oversee them, have charge over them, and those who admonish them. They're to see them with the right attitude, and within that, they are to live at peace with one another. And uh, we saw also that how the body is to address issues in the church, issues within the family, that we are all commanded to admonish the unruly, those who are out of step in their walk with Jesus Christ. They're, they're, not, they're insubordinate. They're not in step. Admonish the unruly. We're to encourage the discouraged and help the faint-hearted. And within that, uh, we're not to return evil for evil, but we're to respond in a godly and patient way when we're treated wrongly. And then we saw God's will for our inner lives. What's his will for what's going on on the inside? We are to, be, we are to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. For that, or this, is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Tremendous reality. It can't be simpler than that. It's God's will for us to be joyful in Christ. It's God's will for us to be prayerful all the time. And it's God's will for us to be thankful. That's what should be going on on the inside. Not grumbling, complaining, uh, upsetness. Hey, there are difficulties that come upon us. But look at David. He brought him to the Lord on his bed. He poured out his soul before the Lord. And he was able to rejoice. You read those Psalms. There's difficulty, but he's always praising God and rejoicing by the time you get to the end. So we see that. We are to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And then we saw how we are to respond to the word of God. We are to not quench the spirit. We are not to, to, to press down the work of the spirit through the word of God in our lives. We're not to do that. And we are not to extinguish that work by putting it out. You see, the spirit leads us, but he won't drag us. He convicts us, but we can, we can say no to that. We're not to do that. We're to allow the Spirit of God to the Word of God to graciously lead us. And as we've seen in the book of Romans, those who are His are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. They're shooting them down as those thoughts come up in your head. No, that's not right. No, that's sinful. Or when I yield to it, Lord, I'm sorry, I, it's wrong. We humble ourselves before Him. We're to uh, not quench the Spirit of God. But then we also saw we are to not despise prophetic utterances. At this time, there was still prophecy as the Scriptures were being compiled, brought forth, as the letters were being written. There wasn't the completed Word of God. They were to not despise the Word of God. They were not to disregard or reject the Word of God. But instead, in contrast, they were to examine or test everything carefully. They were to have discernment discernment, knowing how to test that and understand. And they were to then abstain or, or to, to, to hold on to everything that is good. Grasp it. Don't let go of it. As you discern from the Word of God what is good, you hold on to it. And then abstain or stay away from every form of evil, not just the little forms of evil. The church has a real good way of saying, this is evil, this is evil, and this is evil. And yeah, it is. But they don't see the other things as evil, like anger, unforgiveness, all that other stuff that we need to deal with. Abstain from every form of evil. Stay away. Be discerning. And then we saw that the Lord God does this. It's His work in us. We can't do this. It's the Lord God that sanctifies us completely and will bring us to that completion. He will complete the work that He began because He's a faithful God. 
Faithful is he who calls you, and he will bring it to pass. He's a faithful God. He's going to complete the work. He is wonderfully working on each and every one of us. And so from this point, we come to the final words that Paul has in this letter to the Thessalonian church. Let's look at it. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 25. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, some teachers and preachers say, Amen, go to lunch, right? (laughs) The reality is, no, there's more to it than that. These commands are very important. Yes, they seem to be quite simple, but there's much to it that we need to understand if you look at the rest of Scripture in relationship to what Paul is saying here. We understand the Apostle Paul is giving some short commands, but they have implications that go much beyond that shortness, as we would say. Now, as I read that, did you notice something, something repeated? Brethren, right? Brethren, three times. Now, Paul has used the term in 1 Thessalonians, brethren, 18 times. 18 times. He is speaking to believers here in Thessalonica. The brethren, they are those who have been convicted of their sin. They have turned to Jesus Christ, believing in him and his work on the cross as sufficient to cover their sin and bring forgiveness. They're believers. Remember, he began by sharing his thankfulness for their labor of, for their work of faith, their labor of love in chapter one, their steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was so thankful that they responded to the fully convicting word of God by the power of the Spirit. And that transformation everyone saw, and it was broadcast throughout. These Thessalonians received the word of God in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, and they became mimics of Paul and Silas and Timothy and examples to other believers. Tremendous reality. These idolaters had turned to God from their idolatry to wait for his son from heaven, the Lord Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so he says, brethren, now the reality is when you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, you enter into a brand new relationship with the living God. A relationship in which we become his children and thus we become brothers and sisters of one another in the family of God, the highest family there is. We know in 1 John chapter 3 that it is so tremendous, God's love for us. 1 John 3, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called, now it's called by him, by the way, children of God, and such we are. And for that reason, the world doesn't know us, right? The world doesn't know us. The Lord Jesus said in John, or actually John brought this forth in, in, in John chapter 1, but as many as received him, speaking of Jesus, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. And he says how that happened. Even to those who believed in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you trust in him, you become a child of God, the tremendous privilege, and we are brothers and sisters. And so these commands, brethren, 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 right? Brethren. And notice there's a few things here also. Verse 26, greet all the brethren. Verse 27, the end of it, all the brethren. There's an implication that the brethren are together, that they are together, all the brethren. There's not a few brethren straggling out over there that don't come to church. They're together. The ones who are saved are together. They're together. Greet all the brethren, as we're going to see. Have it read to all the brethren. So then, this is for believers. And so what does he say? What's his first command in these last that we see here? He says, brethren, pray for us. Now, who is the us here? It's Paul, Silas, and Timothy. That's who chapter 1, verse 1 says is bringing this forth. Paul writes the letter, but he is with Silas and Timothy, faithful ministry companions. He says, pray for us. 
You'll remember Silas and Paul were put in jail just a while before, weren't they? They were put in jail, right? And run out. There's a hostile environment out there, as we'll see, to those who shared the gospel. He says, pray for us. Pray for us. And this is significant because when someone asks for prayer, they're acknowledging their inability to take care of the circumstance. And that's the way we should be all the time. Pray without ceasing, right? But the Apostle Paul has been sharing throughout examples throughout this book of his dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. That only the Lord saves. That Paul wasn't the means in which people were saved. That the Lord saves. Look back in chapter 1. Back to chapter 1, where he talks and he, he prays here concerning the, the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, by, the, by God his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Hey, we, we're constantly thanking God. Paul's a man of prayer. We're constantly thanking God. Uh, look at uh, chapter 2, verse 13. Look at what he says there. He says, And for this reason we constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men. And who were those men? That was Paul and Silas and Timothy, right? He says, I'm thankful you didn't take it as our word. It's God's word, right? He says, but for what it really is, the word of God, which performs its work in you who believe. Tremendous. Then look at uh, chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12. He says, And may the Lord cause you to increase. Each chapter we see a prayer, basically. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as we also do for you, that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Again, another prayer. And then what do we see just before our passage? Look back in verse 23 in chapter 5, just before our passage. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. The Apostle Paul is a man of prayer, and he's praying for these Thessalonians. But yet, he not only prays for them, he asks at the end of this letter for prayer from them. The Apostle Paul recognized that God was the only one that could do what he needed to do, what needed to be done, that God was the only way, that, he needed to, that, he, that it was through God that anything that would be accomplished, as we'll see, would be done by his power and strength and not his, not Paul's. He says, brethren, pray for us. Now again, what's a prayer? It's simply communication with the living God. We can boldly come before his throne. We can come into his presence at any time. The only thing that will hinder that is sin. Psalm 66, David says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, it means I'm keeping it there, I'm not, not confessing it. The Lord doesn't hear. What about 1 Peter 3, 7 about husbands? Hey, you know, you better be functioning right with your wife lest your, your prayers are hindered, right? You've got sin, it's going to hinder your relationship with the Lord. So he says here, that, uh, brethren, pray for us. Pray for us. Now, remember, we saw earlier in the chapter that we are to pray without ceasing, didn't we? We saw that back in verse 17. We're to continually be praying. We're to continually be praying. Now, Jesus himself, God in human flesh, exhibited a lifestyle of dependence on the Father, didn't he? Uh, he's our example in that sense. And he was a man in his humanity of prayer. Remember Mark chapter 1, verse 35? And in the morning, while it was still dark, he arose, speaking of Jesus, and went out and departed to a lonely place, and he was praying there. God in human flesh, praying, revealing his dependence on the, on the Father. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. They're looking for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. 
What was Jesus doing? Everyone's looking for him, but he's praying. He's praying, right? He's praying. In the book of Acts, the early church was continually devoted to prayer, weren't they? Acts 1.14, and they were of one mind, continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and the mother of Mary, and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. Acts 2.42, and they were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, prayer, and fellowship. So Paul says in our passage, pray for us. Now, what's his desire? What's his request? What what does he pray for us for what? What, Paul? What do you want us to pray for? Just a general sense? I pray for Paul. I don't know what he wants. What does Paul want them to pray for? What's the implication within the book that we've seen, but also within what we see in Scripture? What is he asking for their prayer for? Well, we can look at some of his other requests, which give us some insight probably into what he is asking here and what we need to be praying for in regards to our leaders and those who give you the word of God. Turn to Romans chapter 15, Romans 15, and we'll look at some of these prayers of Paul, these requests, more specifically requests for prayer, which might give us insight into what he is desiring from these Thessalonians. Romans 15, verse 30, and notice the dependence on the Lord in this. Romans 15, verse 30, now I urge you, brethren... By our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Strive in your prayers together in, in, with me in your prayers for me. And what does he say? That I might be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea. First of all, protect me from those who don't have faith, right? Those Jews, right? And that my service... And that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. Hey, that this would be acceptable. So that I may come to you by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now may the God of peace be with you. Amen. Hey, protect me, Lord God, and help me to accomplish your will so that I can minister to them. You see, that's what he's saying. What about 2 Thessalonians chapter 3? Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We see another request for prayer. Another request for prayer. 2 Thessalonians 3. He says, finally, brethren, pray for us. Pray for us. That the word of the Lord may spread, spread rapidly and, that, and be glorified, just as it did also with you. And that we may be delivered, we may be delivered from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. Notice he's, he's, he recognizes who's the one that delivers. But the Lord is faithful, and He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Pray for us that we'll be delivered, but He comforts them. He'll protect you, right? The reality is there are threats to those who bring you the Word of God. If you think there's no spiritual warfare for those who bring you the word of God, you are sorely mistaken. Even within our own lives, there's a battle, right? There's a battle to trust Jesus, right? There's the temptation, there's the tempter. There's, there's a, we have an enemy like goes about like a roaring, like a, like a roaring, like seeking someone to devour. He prowls about. Take a look. What about Colossians chapter four? We have another request, a pretty significant one. Colossians chapter 4, look at uh, verse 2, Colossians 4, verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it, hey, don't be falling asleep, yeah, we do fall asleep at night, yes, but when you're praying, it's an important thing, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, Praying at the same time, notice what he says, for us as well. For us as well. Pray. And notice what he says, that God may open a door up to us for the word. He may open up a door for the word so that we may speak for the mystery of Christ for which I have been imprisoned in order that I may make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. This is quite amazing what he says here. He is revealing here his total dependence on the Lord. And he's asking for prayer because he's saying it won't happen unless God intervenes. And that's the reality of prayer. It's not going to happen unless God intervenes. Look at this more closely. 
He says, praying for us at the same time as well, praying at the same time as well for us, excuse me, us as well, that God may open a door for the word. Wow, we need to understand this and get this example. There's a lot of people out there priming the gospel pump or going out, yelling to the crowds, repent, whatever it might be. The reality is God opens the door, and it is based on prayer when someone's heart has changed. God opens the door for the word. He is the one. Sadly, there's so much evangelism these days pushing the gospel down non-believers' throats. Paul didn't do this. He was praying for opportunities and open doors. Opportunities and open doors. He says here that God would open a door for us. He's not pounding on it, trying to bust through it, but that God would open a door for what? For the word, for the word. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul shared in his report as he returned from his first missionary journey? Uh, Acts 14, turn to Acts 14. 26. And you see, when you're dependent on the Lord, guess who gets the glory when it happens? The Lord does, doesn't it? The Lord does. Acts 14, 26. The middle of that. So, and from there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God before the work which they had accomplished. Verse 27, Acts 14. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together... Oh, they came together. Nobody's staying home. They're all together. They began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he, speaking of God, had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. God did it. God did it. The Lord Jesus Christ would share to the church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, Behold, I put an open door before you. No one can shut. When the Lord does it, the Lord does it. We don't have to force anything. The Lord is the one who opens the doors. And this shows total dependence. We should be praying, Lord, open a door for the gospel with my parents, with my husband, with my wife, with whatever it might be. Open doors. We should be praying for one another. Open doors for the gospel, for our relatives, for those around us. Open doors, Lord God. Open doors. And not only does he pray for an open door, he prays for the right way in which he goes through that open door. It's one thing to have an open door. It's another thing to do what you ought to do when that door is open. Notice what he says back in Colossians chapter 4. Stay back there. Colossians 4. He says, praying, verse 3, at the same time for us as well, that God may open up a door for the word so that we may speak forth what? The mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. God who took on human flesh, the Messiah King who died for your sins. He had to suffer first for the glories to come. That we would speak of Christ. That we would speak of Christ. And he says, for which I have been imprisoned. And then notice this more humble dependence. This is so important. Verse 4, and we can learn from Paul's example. In order that... I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Wow. That's evangelism. That's the way we should be doing it. Pray for us that God would open a door. And when he opens that door, that we would proclaim Christ. And that we would do it in a manner that we ought to do it. In the manner in which we ought to speak. That we are obligated to speak. I need prayer because if I don't have the Lord's help, I will not do that. Pray. Pray. Tremendous reality. Tremendous. Paul understood his gifting and responsibility, yet he understood he could not accomplish it apart from the Lord's complete help. Therefore, he requests prayer for open doors and how he ought to speak. The term ought to speak speaks of compulsion and proper words. And proper words. So then, if we would only all minister this way, if we would be dependent in that way, we need to be reminded. One last request he makes, which is very similar, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. So although our passage just says pray for us, we have all these other examples of where Paul has asked for prayer. And every single one has to do with the word of God going out, functioning properly in Christ, and being protected from evildoers. 
Ephesians chapter 6. There's another picture from this here. Ephesians 6.18. This is speaking in the context of putting on the form of God because we have a spiritual enemy, the devil. Uh, with all prayer and petition, Ephesians 6.18. In the spirit, with this in mind, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And notice what he says, verse 19. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains in that in proclaiming I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Pray for me that I speak the way I ought to speak, that I would be bold in that context. And we know it would be in the context of open doors, right? From what we've read in the other prayer requests. Brothers and sisters, pray for those who share the word of God. They are a target for Satan. They're a target for pride also. You know that? Doing things within their own strength rather than trusting and relying completely on Christ. Listen to this prayer of believers after Peter and John were released. Turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. This is the church praying for it. You know, so often our prayers are about help Aunt Sally, help this, help that. You know, we're to pray about everything. That's okay. But the reality is we should be praying about the things God has us here on earth to do. The ministry that he is doing to the church. Acts 4.23 And when they had been released, that's Peter and John, they went, on their, they, went on, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they had heard this, they lifted up their voices with voices to God in with one accord and said, O Lord, it is thou who didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, thy servant, didst say, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise a vain, vain thing or devise futile things? The kings of earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against their, his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant, here you go, that thy bondservants may speak thy word with all confidence. And while they did extend thy hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place uh, through the, the name of thy holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Pray that we'd speak the word of God. God would open a door for the word. God would protect us from evildoers. You see, God does answer the prayers of those who are walking with him, praying according to his will. James chapter 5 says, The effective prayer of a righteous man accomplished much. It gives the example of Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain for three years and six months. And he prayed again, the sky poured forth rain and the earth produced fruit. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. First Peter chapter 3, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord look upon, are upon the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Evaluate your prayer life. What do you pray for? We need to be praying for those who share the word of God. You need to be praying for me. And a lot of you do, and I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for that. But keep praying that God would open doors, that we would speak as we ought to speak. We'd give clear, bold proclamation in total dependence to him, that God would protect us from the evil one and evil men, for not all have faith. Be praying. So Paul says in his last words here to them in this letter, brethren, pray for us. Pray for us. Okay, back in our passage, notice what he says after that. Notice he, and then we're going to see we all are to express a holy affection for one another. We'll talk about that. Brethren, pray for us. And then verse 26, 1 Thessalonians 5, 
Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. All right. This is a command. We're like, okay, what does this mean, right? (laughs) We're all going, hmm, right? Well, hopefully we'll be able to understand what it means because we need to understand the context that it was given and we need to understand what a greeting was back in those days. We need to understand the context from Scripture, what a greeting is, and then what it means in terms of a holy kiss. Now, in general, a greeting was a way in which those who loved one another expressed that love when they would see one another. That's the same for us. You see those you love, your family, you, you, you say, oh, you know, you're, you're, you're greeting them, right? Culturally speaking, apart from a relationship with the Lord, we understand that, right? It's one thing to say hi. It's another thing to greet someone you love. It's different, right? It's different. You might give them a hug or whatever it might be when you greet them. Now here, the practice of greeting back at that time was related to families, uh, individual families, but also a religious family, such as the Jews considered themselves as a religious family, like the church in a sense. So they would greet one another in certain ways because of that, that, that relationship that they had uh, together. Now this would include uh, a kiss, which was cultural at the time of Jesus and at the time of Paul. Now let me explain this. Do you remember when Jesus reproved the Pharisees when they had invited him and a woman, a sinner, they called her, she's probably a prostitute, was weeping at his feet and wiping them with her hair and kissing them and anointing, anointing his feet and how the Pharisees responded in hypocritical judgment? Well, how did Jesus respond? Now, this is important because it gives us an idea of this idea of a greeting with a kiss. Look at uh, Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 44. You know, it's important to look at our historical culture and try to interpret that way, but that's not the primary way we interpret Scripture. We interpret Scripture with Scripture. With Scripture. Luke chapter 7, verse 44. And turning to the woman... He said to Simon, that's not Simon Peter, by the way. He said, do you see this woman? I entered your house. He was the, with the Pharisee that his house is his house, right? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me what? No kiss. It was a greeting. It was a greeting. You gave me no kiss, but she... Since the time she has in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, are, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has forgiven little, he who, he who has forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. So this idea, it was a, it was a holy, it was a greeting. It was a greeting of those who, who, who were, had a relationship. They were showing a, a love for one another. And the Jews had that, culturally speaking, within their nation because they were of the Lord, at least outwardly. Now notice he says back in our passage, greet one another with a holy kiss. He explains it, doesn't he? Folks, there are greetings that are not holy. There are greetings that are holy. Certainly some greetings can be, unfortunately, sexual in nature. It can be that way. I heard of a pastor who would hug everybody at the front door. Now, I'm not saying I know his heart, you know, but he wasn't very wise. And a non-believer came up to him one day and said, I see how you hug all the babes and winked at him. The reality is we need to be very careful in our greetings. It needs to be holy. It needs to be holy. Okay, now it also needs to not be deceitful or hypocritical. Can you think of someone in Scripture who gave Jesus a kiss and it was deceitful and hypocritical? Look at Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. This was a standard greeting in that time. And usually you see it between men and men and women and women in that sense, even though the woman was kissing Jesus' feet. But standardly, that's what you see. Notice what he does. Luke 22, verse 47. While he was still speaking, that's the Lord Jesus, 
a multitude came and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to do what? To kiss him. It's a greeting. And he says here, says here, but Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? You're a hypocrite, Judas. You're a hypocrite. You see, it was a standard greeting, but that greeting could be hypocritical or sinful, unholy. And we're being commanded to greet all the brethren, not a few of them. You know, there's lots of little cliques in churches. There are a lot of people you like, oh, they get the greeting. But the other ones are kind of, well, you know, your heart isn't there. Well, the point is not the greeting. The point is where is your heart towards everybody? Greet everyone, as we're going to see. We should have a heart towards every true believer, as we're going to see. It shouldn't be clicky. So notice what he says. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Now, the possibility is he's saying greet for us, but it really in the context here, it, I don't think that's it, because in other places he'll say greet him for us. Here he's not saying I think he's talking about greeting. Greet one another. Because he's going to say the next thing, have the letter read to everybody. So what's the significance of a greeting? As I mentioned before, it speaks of uh, that uh, affection within a family. And the Jews understood the significance. There was either a family or a religious bond. And for us, all the brethren, we are in the family of God. The family of God is a higher family than our own families. We should be greeting one another with our hearts in a sense, first of all, not the action outwardly, but we should want to see those who are brothers and Christ even more than our own families. What did Jesus say, Matthew chapter 12, about his family? It wasn't that he was treating them badly, except there's a higher family. There's a higher family. Matthew 12, verse 47, And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But he answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, emphatically. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother, sister, and mother. And he goes on to say the very same thing in Luke chapter uh, 8, where he says, My mother and brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. They're those who obey God. They are, they're, they're new creations. They're those who have the ability now and the desire to obey God. That's my family. That's my family. So we are to greet one another, or greet all the brethren. We're to have an affection for those who are spiritual brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. We're to do that, and it is to be, it is to be holy. It's to be holy. Now, how do we do it in a holy manner? Well, it's no way in which, uh, well, we need, certainly there's within the customs in which we live, right? You know, we don't have a custom where we kiss everybody that comes around. There's a little bit. I mean, every once in a while you'll see those, you know, informal settings, you know, kissing the cheek. You know, there's that, maybe that, you know, there's that semi-culturally. But the reality is, in our culture, because it's so sexual, things can be misconstrued very easily. And we need to be very careful that what we do is holy from the inside, but also has does not lend to the appearance of being unholy on the outside. Sadly, we've had people here who were huggers. And I mean, and, this, and you may, people may have hugged. Don't judge people. You don't know where their hearts are at. Let God deal with that, okay? But we can learn that we weren't misconstrued, okay? But we've had people that have proved themselves to be maybe not spiritually right after they've left. But they were hugging everybody. It would make me uncomfortable. Every woman came through, oh, you know, and I don't know, I don't know what the heart was going on there. But we need to stay away from that which is unholy. I would say, not as a law or a rule or anything like that, but maybe men hug men and women hug women. That, that seems holy to me. I would be cautious about the other, okay? I would be cautious. Now, obviously, there's a context to that. Don't be joining around to be the hug police, all right? We're to love one another. We're to love one another, okay? We're to love one another. But we need to be discerning in that. It says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. As long as it's holy... And how you do it, then that's good. Then that's good. But I think the point is, we should have an affection. The greeting was an affection. It was an affection. A family. It's saying, as we'll see, it was saying, we are family. We are together in Christ. Because, and let me give you some, uh, 
some, uh, um, and you know, you see in Scripture all throughout about greeting one another. You see it, uh, uh, Philippians chapter 4, 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Hebrews 13, 24, greet all the leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Hey, we are, uh, we are, the, we are, we are in Christ. It's a special bond. Now, something that's important, and there's two caveats, and I already mentioned one part of it already, was we just don't greet those within the body of Christ that we are clickier like more than others. Be very careful. What does Jesus say in uh, Matthew, 5, Matthew 5? Turn to Matthew 5. Now, the assumption is this is Israel. They are God's people. Remember the context. So it's almost like the church in a sense. Now, not everyone who was Israel really was Israel, that they really believed, right? We know that. But the assumption is they're God's people, okay? And notice what he says, Matthew 5, 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, uh, what do you ha- what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same thing? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You're not to be isolated in your greeting. And I think in the context for us, if it says greet all the brethren, there shouldn't be a few that you greet more than you greet anyone else. There should be a heart affection. And I'll share this at times, and it's not the way it used to be in our church, but it was this way before. People would come in the door, and my heart's like, I want to say hi. And people are sitting there like ignoring everybody. Don't manufacture that, but you should be happy to see them. It should be a blessing. These are my brothers and sisters in Christ. They are my brothers and sisters. Now, one last warning, one caveat. Turn to Second John. The greeting really did signify you are saying they're a brother or sister in Christ, by the way. It did. It's really saying you are the family of God and I love you. You're, you're my brother or sister in Christ. It's a very serious thing. And so, therefore, we better not greet anyone that isn't of Christ or someone who makes it look like they are, but they're not. We be very careful, otherwise you will share in their sins. Notice how this is spoken here. Notice the greeting issue here, the greeting issue. Second John, uh, and it's, there's only one chapter, Second John, verse 8. And this has to do with those churches that are not good either, by the way. Be very careful. Second John, verse 8. Watch yourselves that you may not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Hey, the Word of God has been working in you. You're being built up more like Christ, but you can lose that and not receive a full reward. Very serious. Watch yourself. Warning. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide, that means remain in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. And the one who abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and what? Do not give him a greeting. That's the significance. For he who gives him, he's explaining, a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Don't be treating the, uh, the, the, those uh, denominational churches down the road as your brothers and sisters. Don't be saying, hey, brother. They're not. Do not give them a greeting. That's the point. We're not in the same family. And if you do so, you're now identifying with them and you cause people to stumble. You participate in their evil deeds. That's a pretty serious situation. Those who have a wrong gospel, those who twist the word of God, those who are, who are not bringing the truth of Christ rightly, don't greet them. They're not brothers and sisters in Christ. They are not. You participate in their evil deeds. So the greeting was very important back then. It was an identification of being in the family of God. And we are to greet every brother with a holy. It's not a manufactured thing. It should be a heart thing. I love you guys, and I'm glad you're here. You know what I'm saying? Glad to see you. How are you doing, right? There's a genuine concern and care like you would with any true family member you love when you see them. Right? Okay. So then, we are to be praying for the leaders he says, brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Notice what he says next, back in 1 Thessalonians. I adjure you, verse 27, chapter 5, by the Lord to have this letter read to, again, this term, all the brethren. He says, I adjure you by the Lord. 
This is a command from Paul, but yet it is Paul saying, it's the Lord that's making this through me. And it always is, but he's strengthening it. I adjure. The term adjure is a very strong term. It means to put under a binding oath. I put you under a binding oath to do this. To do this. By the Lord. The Lord is putting you under an oath to do this. To do what? I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. Very important. Notice he says, to all the brethren. There's an implication that the whole body of Christ is to hear it. And it was actually spoken in a tense that means a singular act in a particular time. Get them together and read this letter. And read this letter. You are obligated by the Lord to do this. I adjure you by the Lord. Now, at this time, there were copies of the Old Testament scriptures. Remember, the Bereans checked the scriptures to see if it was so. There were copies of it. The New Testament letters, we have some that were out, like this here, and yet they were not complete, nor were they copied yet in mass yet. Okay, So letters were read uh, to the congregations in that sense, and they needed to be read. And so, by God's grace, we've done that here. You've all heard this whole book, haven't you? We've obeyed this command. The sad thing is I see many believers and make-believers, they've never read through the book of First Thessalonians. They've never heard it in church. They've never heard it in the body of Christ. So few, so little of God's word goes out in total. Nothing, little bits and pieces, but God's word doesn't go out in, 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 in total or completely. You see, the reading of scripture in the church was paramount. And in the, in the, in, in we see that from Paul. Look to Colossians chapter uh, Four, Colossians chapter 4. Greet the brethren, verse 15, who were in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. And when this letter is read among you, Colossians 4, 16, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans, and you for your part read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Read the letter. Have them all listen to it. The early church was continually devoted to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, and prayer. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul tells Timothy, Until I come, verse 13, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. That's what the church should be about. What about 2 Timothy chapter 4? Turn there, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says, I solemnly charge you. Very serious charge. Again, these charges have to do with the word of God going out, by the way. That's why pastors that don't put out the word of God are so evil, by the way. Such an evil act. Can't think of anything more evil than a pastor not feeding the sheep, by the way. 2 Timothy 4.1 I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths or stories. You see that? So Paul says, I adjure you by the Lord, have this letter written. Serious charge. Now God uses his word to bring us into his kingdom, the gospel, that we're born again through the living and abiding living word of God. But he also is the means in which he equips us for every good work, 2 Timothy 3.16. It's his word that performs its work in us, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. It is his word by which we grow in respect to salvation, 1 Peter 2.1. It's his word by which we renew our minds and are not conformed to this world, but transformed, Romans chapter 12. It's his word which is a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. It's a word in which we are to, it's his word which we are to hide in our hearts that we might not sin against him. It's his word that we live by spiritually. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This should be taught and read in every church all the way. I adjure you by the Lord. I adjure you. Sadly, this isn't happening in many churches, but there's nothing new under the sun, folks. Listen to what a preacher wrote more than a hundred years ago. The word of God is not loved and studied, either privately or publicly. 
Trashy literature is devoured in public, music and ritualistic services, and imposing ceremonies are eagerly sought after in the public. Thousands will flock to hear music and pay it for admission, but how few care for a meeting to read the Holy Scriptures? These are the facts, and the facts are powerful arguments. We cannot get over them. There is a growing thirst for religious excitement and a growing distaste for the calm study of the Holy Scripture and the spiritual exercise exercise of Christian activity. It's perfectly useless to deny it. We cannot shut our eyes to it. The evidence meets us on every hand. And he says, Thank God there are few here and there who really love the Word of God and delight to meet in holy fellowship for the study of His precious truths. May the Lord increase the number of such and bless them abundantly. May our lot be cast with them till our traveling days are done. That's more than 100 years ago. So true. So true. The reality is the Word of God should be going forth in the, in the churches. Have this letter, 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 have this letter read to all the brethren. Now, maybe some of you have lost your desire for the Word of God. I'll tell you, sin has gotten in the way. It, when, when our desire goes out the window for the Word of God, our selfishness, our sin's in the way, we've got to confess. And God will purify our hearts. He cleanses our hearts from our sin, and then he gives us a desire for it. You just listen when David is talking to, when Solomon recounts David talking to him when he was young in Proverbs 4. He says, My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart. For they are life to those who find the speaking of the word of God and health to their whole body. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Watch over your heart. Have the word functioning rightly. May we all have a tremendous hunger for God's glorious provision of his word for us. So then, we come to the last command. He says, first of all, brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. And he says here, not a command, he just says, hey, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He says, the grace of our Lord He's the, he's, he's the Lord. He's the sovereign. Jesus, the term Jesus is when God the Son took on human flesh, you shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Matthew one twenty one. It means the Lord is salvation. Christ, it speaks of the Messiah, the King predicted in the Old Testament, who would rule forever and ever on the throne of David, who would die for us, suffer first for the glories to follow. And he is Lord. May his grace be with you. That's the desire. His grace. Now what is grace? It's God's unmerited favor revealed in none other in none other than Christ and what he's done. It's an attribute of God. First Peter 5.10 spoke of the grace, uh, uh, the God of all grace. We see throughout scripture that God's unmerited favor towards mankind is manifest in Christ. In Christ. John said in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth, unmerited favor and truth. 2 Corinthians 8.9, encouraging the Corinthians to give their previous pledge from a heart that's right, that desires to help the body of Christ. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. God's grace has appeared. Ephesians 2.8.9, we've been saved by grace. God poured his favor that we didn't deserve out on us by sending his son Jesus for us. But it's not only are we saved by his grace, we function by his grace. Every day we function in the same context where we can't do it. It's all him. May God's grace be with you. May it not be you on your own. May it be God's grace with you. God's grace. Peter's desire was that grace and peace would be multiplied in our lives. Second Peter 1. Jesus said, apart from him, we can do nothing. John 15. 2 Corinthians 3.5, not that we're adequate to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. God told Paul that his grace is sufficient. 2 Corinthians 2.12.9, 2, 
for power is perfected in weakness. Now, for his grace to be manifest in your life, you need to humble yourselves that he would work through you. His power is perfected in weakness. So he ends this letter with the desire of God through Paul's desire, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. May you function more and more by total dependence on Christ, his favor poured out in your life and everything you do. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So then, wonderful commands and a final statement. We're to pray for those who share the word of God with us. We're to express a holy affection for all the brethren in our midst, all of them in our midst. We're to take God's word seriously, and we're to function by God's grace alone. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your wonderful truth. Thank you for your son who is uh, the manifestation of your grace. Lord, may the grace of your son Jesus be with us. May we obey these commands, Lord God, in the context of depending on him. May we be those who are aware of the spiritual battles of those who share the word with us. May we pray for open doors for the word. May we pray for their protection, Lord God, and each other. May we greet one another, Lord God, in a way that is holy. May we have an affection for one another, for everyone who's a believer in our midst, because they're precious, because your son gave his life for them. Lord, uh, may we take your word seriously together. And Lord, may we function by your grace. Lord, we can't do it apart from you, so we ask you to do it in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.